Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Rachel Nannan Brown. Hello, I'm Dr. Richard Carrier. I'm Peter Bogosian. Hi, I'm Damian Gillis. Hi, this is Wanda Morris. I'm Dr. Daryl Ray. Hi, I'm R.N. Raw, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. And the party was really good. Woke up this morning. Had a burning deep inside. Like when you're feeling. It's all a big lie I feel the pain There's hunger and despair It's off the red brick of your teaching Time for us to share Well, we're back. Welcome and Left of the Valley with Kevin and Karen. Hi, Karen. Hello, Kevin. And we have our friends here today. we got Mark and Nancy. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Mark. Hi, Nancy. Glad to have you here. Oh, so good to be here. Guys, you might not know this, but uh, it's been actually one year now. This is Yay. the one-year anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, where's our cheering? Where's our, where's our clip of, of cheering and clapping? And yay! Yeah. Come on, yay! <laughs> well, after a year... <laughs> it's good to see you reach this level of yeah, professionalism. It's, it's professionalism. Is As you can tell. The hard work's paid off. <laughs> Actually, the first, very first show uh, that we did was uh, March 24th, last year. And now this is episode 34. Um... Since we do a bi-weekly show, we think you would have 26 episodes, but we had a couple of extra episodes in there. Is that happy birthday on, like, the symbols or something? Crazy? Something like that. Yeah, the xylophone, well, I think. Xylophone, yeah. xylophone. Wow. <laughs> Where'd you dig that up? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fine. Sorry. Well, cut it off altogether. Congratulations, Kevin. You did an awesome job for a whole year of podcasting. Well, don't congratulate so me. It's a team effort, and... Uh, Thank you all. So thank you to our listeners for sticking with us. You do thick and thin, a lot of thin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and a wonderful year to come. A lot of new things. A absolutely. Lot of guests, absolutely. A lot of interesting ideas. I think we have some interesting stuff. Mark has just uh, found a very interesting article, and Nancy always has her awesome this day in history. So. I I just, um, because Mark's here and we're both big fans of Terry Pratchett, I would like to say rest in peace to Terry yeah, for Pratchett. Sure. Big loss. Yeah, yeah, I never read Terry Pratchett, but you guys are obviously quite yeah big fans. You need to him, check so. him out. Yeah. yeah, he he died of Alzheimer's, and he uh, he died young he, too. He did, but yeah. he he's he really um, worked hard to advance uh, research and understanding of Alzheimer's while he was alive. So, yeah. and he was quite featured that. in your, on your fictional book. Yeah, he was. Yeah, <laughs> 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 that was a great list. <laughs> a big proponent of dying with dignity too. Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course you guys can check that out when we had the interview with Wanda Morris. Uh, that's an, uh, just because this popped into my head. Um, my, I was talking to someone who I did not think would support dying with dignity. A, an older man from um, a different cultural background, from a different country, and uh, he was all for supporting dying with dignity. So I was really impressed. It has a really widespread. Um, support across every demographic in Canada. Mm-hmm. Also in England, I was just reading, 90% of non-believers support it and 70% of believers yeah, support that's it. that's fabulous. That is really good. Yeah. Um, well, you guys might not realize, but uh, the, audience, the audience might have picked this up. You know when we say you know positive atheism, skeptical thinking, and secular humanism, we try to do that in a show. We try to have like an atheist show followed by like a skeptical show and followed by a somewhat humanist show. Um, today's show is a skeptical one. 
And uh, we have later on, we have an interview with Christopher DiCarlo, which is an author who wrote this fantastic book called How to Become a Really Good Pain in the Ass. And we'll probably call the show that too. Uh, we've got a lot of things going on. Um, a little uh, segment about knowing your fallacies. We'll start doing that on every skeptical show now. We'll put a little blurb about knowing all the different fallacies, logical fallacies, when you, you speak to people, and hopefully we can instruct that. We have another brilliant moment. We have a little Reformation report about what's going on in Chilliwack. We've got uh, things that make you go, hmm, with Mark that's got a great list. And But before all that, of course, we have the State of History. Okay, here we go. as we know by now, is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between March 16th and March 29th. Let's start with March 16th, which uh, is an interesting day called Book Smugglers Day in Lithuania, and that's because way back um, the Russian Orthodox only allowed books to be printed in Latin, and the Lithuanians smuggled books in, in their own own language, and uh, that day commemorates that struggle to have uh, things printed in the local language. Which good, is for them. Yeah, That's good awesome. for them. Um, 1881, Barnum and Bailey Circus debuts, which is a wonderful event for anybody that likes going to the circus. Mark flashbacks to your elephant story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, see the elephant. But, but this is a happy one. This oh, okay. Is, this doesn't involve Barnum, but they're totally innocent. Totally innocent. Okay. I'm skeptical, skeptical about that one. No, no, that's factual. It's factual. Uh, March 17th was, of course, St. Patrick's Day, and anybody who wanted to wear green, whether they were Irish or not, and turned Irish for the day with a name like Gallagher. <laughs> it's, I always love when, when uh, St. Patrick's Day comes along because Gallagher is a perfect, perfect name for that day. March 18th uh, was Flag Day in Aruba. Um, here's a good Canadian story. In 1945, on March 18th, Maurice Rocket Richard became yay, the, yay. <laughs> the first National Hockey League player to score 50 goals. Yay. Big deal back then. Mark, Mark, you might not know hockey is actually a sport here. In Never country. heard of it. Never heard of it, huh? No. <laughs> I'd like to do a, a spotlight on Maurice Richard. It's like, it's like cricket, but better. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is better than cricket. He had, he had a tough time. He was the only Francophone in the NHL at that time. He had a lot of racism leveled at him, and uh, he was an interesting character. Yeah. Oh, make a good profile. Yeah. We still so. do face a lot of racism. Yes, you do. I, I totally agree, and... He was pretty much a, a groundbreaker. But I was kidding NHL. about that. We don't face that much racism. Well, where you go. It's a fallacy that Canada is free of racism. I'm sorry. I'd wish we were, but we're not. This is so funny. <laughs> go ahead, Nancy. No, no, no. It's really, it's really funny because you know you actually started what I'm going to bring to you in 1992 because that was the date that white South Africans backed an overwhelming mandate for political reforms to end apartheid and create a power-sharing multiracial government. So mm. here we led, who did? Who knew that we were going to lead from, <laughs> from hockey to apartheid so smoothly? Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to plan some of those spontaneous things <laughs> more often. That really worked. Um, in 2013, um, an interesting book called Atheism for Dummies. Uh, who knew, right? Um, this wow. is a, an actual book by a fellow named Dale McGowan. Anybody know Dale? Okay. No. Well, we'll know him from today on then. He's got an Irish name, though. 
It's got a beautiful name. Um, he published it in paperback. It was in a hardback before that. Um, it contains 384 pages, and it's a friendly guide to understanding atheist thought, history, and literature. And Dale McGowan is a Ph.D., and in 2008, he was Harvard Humanist of the Year. Wow. So I guess he kind of keeps a low profile, and they know him in the East. And through this book, I guess, you know, he can perhaps get more well-known. But anybody who wants to, it's available on uh, an Amazon. Um, and I'm sorry I don't know the price, but it's not an ex- it's not a very expensive book. And, well, hmm. surely since it has all the basics well worth having as a resource. Oh, we'll find the link and put it on our website. Yeah, great. Um, March 20th was the vernal equinox and the first day of spring. And uh, since it's such a gorgeous sunny day today. Bye bye, <laughs> winter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here in the valley? The, the sun is someplace lurking. Um, and the 21st, the 21st was one of these really great days because it was, take a deep breath, World Poetry Day, Down Syndrome Day, Human Rights Day, International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination Day. Thank you again, Karen. So it was one splendiferous package of wow. a variety of goodies in, in one day. Um, in 19... You get a lot of scrabble points for splendiferous. There. Splendiferous, I know. you got to work those wonderful words in somewhere or another. Uh, and this is the perfect segment to do, <laughs> to do it. I can hide them in there just beautifully. In 1925, the 21st was the day that the Butler Act. Anybody know the what I'm talking about when I say Butler Act? Mark might know. Oh, probably not. What I'm thinking. No, though. because <laughs> no, because nobody associates the name of the act with the fact that that was the act that prohibited the teaching of human evolution in Tennessee. And oh, that was the Scopes Monkey Trial. That was the Scopes Monkey oh. Trial. And believe it or not, from 1925 till 1967, that act remained on the books. Oh Wild. And here we go again with disc- today is not Skeptical Day. I think it's discrimin- <laughs> discrimin- Fight Discrimination Day. Um, in 1965, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, this is the day that he led 3,200 people on the start of the third and finally successful civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, the three marches in 1965 were all part of the Selma Voting Rights Movement, and then that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act in the states, which is a landmark federal achievement of the 1960s American Civil Rights Movement. And uh, those of us who lived through it certainly aren't going to forget. And uh, for this generation, there's, of course, the film Selma, which despite some inaccuracies uh, will acquaint today's generation with the significance of those events. It was a turbulent time. Did anyone see Selma yet? No, no I'm afraid I, I haven't. See it. Yeah, it's a very. Po- I haven't seen it either, but it's a very, very powerful. And the march itself is supposed to be portrayed pretty accurately. It's just mind blowing to me. Like my older brother was born in 1965. I, I can't believe that it's only so recent that that this happened. I know it doesn't doesn't seem like it, but those of us that were born earlier and lived yeah. through it, you, it, it's like a moving picture in your mind. You can yeah. you can really see all all of those events. Anyway, March twenty fifth was guess whose birthday? Richard Dawkins. That's right, turned seventy four. 
Yeah, he, yeah, I forgot exactly. He was 74. Happy birthday, Richard Dawson. Happy birthday. Which, by the way, he will be at Imaginal Religion 5 at the beginning of June right here in Richmond. Good hey. deal, absolutely. And on his birthday in 1837, Canada gave the right to vote to black citizens. And, it, yeah, it took until... 1870 and the 15th Amendment for black citizens to vote in the U.S. So Canada actually had voting rights for for blacks before the state. What, sorry, what was the date again? It was uh, 1837. 1837? Yeah. That's way before women had voting rights. It, it was. It is interesting when you juxtapose different dates from different countries to see what happened. It's surprising because a lot of times you think one country is more progressive than the other, and then you look when things were enacted and you found out that your your thinking is wishful wishful thinking. You know. Alrighty, um, March 26th is Purple Day, supporting epilepsy and the seizure education in Canada. And in 1997, this is really interesting if anybody remembers this, does the, uh, the group Heavenscape strike a yes. chord with anybody? No. Yeah, no. That, was a, that was a cult. Yeah, it was. They were a cult, and in uh, 1997, 39 bodies of uh, the Heavenscape members were found in a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe. Uh, very strange. They were an American uh, UFO religious and they were based in San Diego, California and founded in the early 1970s by a very strange guy named Marshall Applewhite. And if you Google it and you look at Marshall Applewhite, it's surprising people followed him because he's obviously... He, he looks crazy. Yeah, he looks, he's got he that does. crazy look in his eyes. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, they, they believed that by uh, committing suicide, and they did it by taking phenobarbital mixed with applesauce, and then they washed that down with vodka. Ugh. But they believed that by doing this, that um, the Earth planet was about to be recycled, which was to be wiped clean, renewed, refurbished, and rejuvenated. And the only chance to survive that was to leave. And they did. And 39 of wow. them took the applesauce. I mean, it makes you wonder what is it in, in, in certain people's minds that yeah. has them join a cult that's so obviously wacko? And what did this guy have that he could convince them to do that? Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a, I think it's a long process, right? You yeah. can't convince them when you just hear it like that. It's crazy. But when you've been indoctrinated over years, yeah. it just gets, gets progressively crazier. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Uh, March 28th, here we go. You and I, and I don't know about Mark, but definitely Karen, you and I, was left-handed day. Yay! <laughs> Mark, are you a lefty? No, but my wife is. Oh, okay. Oh. Well, we have representation. That's good. Uh, last week, my well, last show, they just pummeled me here because I was the only, <laughs> they had three lefties. Uh, I know, and then the, the very next show, left-handed day, is <laughs> that great? Okay, on the 28th. I suffered in silence. Yeah. Um, I have trouble believing that. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. (laughs) And uh, March 29th, in addition to uh, the anniversary of this show, which is uh, a a day that will definitely go down in history every March 29th, (laughs) it's Youth Day in China, and in 1886, got to go back to 1886 for this one, the first batch of Coca-Cola was brewed over a fire in a backyard in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Really? Yep. Dr. John Pemberton was the guy that had created the concoction as a cure for hangover, stomach ache, and headache. And he advertised it as a brain tonic and an intellectual beverage. (laughs) And it had cocaine in it. It did. It It did. And um, later on on May 8th, it it stayed with cocaine in it until 1904. And then Congress banned it, and then there went all the... The intel- intellectual stimulation. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> it seems to be good for you. <laughs> that was it. And, he, he, and he actually slightly rose from the grave to apologize for all that Coca-Cola <laughs> that went back. And on that note, dear listeners, uh, mm-hmm. let's bring to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. But you really need to drop the mundane because I've never heard anything mundane in what you say. (laughs) I only let the mundane sneak in there between the bizarre stories to give you a chance to to breathe. (laughs) Are you tired of being misunderstood or misrepresented? As a public service, the crew at Left at the Valley proudly presents... Know Your Fallacies with Liam Johnson. Good evening. I've taken time out of my busy schedule to briefly explain to you, the freethinker, the final points of logical fallacies. With some practice, attention to detail, and of course, my guidance, you too will easily disarm any fobbing, hasty-witted fustilarian who dares cross linguistic blades with you. Today, let's look at the simplest attack a memoring lout could use, the ad hominem. Ad hominem fallacies involve attacking a person rather than their argument. For example, by casting aspersions on that person's character or associating the person with a distasteful ideology. Kevin is French. What does he know about personal hygiene? This attack on my odorific friend is a logical fallacy because the fact that a person is repugnant does not mean that they are wrong. Attacking your character when you are stating facts is a clear sign of desperation from your unmuzzled, plume-plucked opponent. Make sure you resist the temptation to do the same. Note that not every use of a personal remark qualifies as an ad hominem. Consider the following remarks that one might make towards a young Earth creationist. You'd have to be an idiot to believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. In this sentence, a personal insult was used. However, the insult was based on the argument being made, and furthermore, the insult follows from the disagreement, not the other way around. The argument technique used is overly emotional, and the assertion of idiocy may be wrong, but it is not ad hominem. Additionally, there is this sort of argument. William Dembski is a mathematician, not a scientist. Why would we take his disbelief about evolution seriously? This is also a personal remark about Dembski, yet it is directly relevant to the subject of argument. Since Dembski is often used as a source of argument from authority, it is certainly relevant to question his credentials. A person who has not studied science is, indeed, less qualified to act as an expert about evolution. Now go forth, my friends, and remember, knowledge is power. The one who knows, wins. Until next time. I'd just like to note that I don't actually think that Kevin has poor personal hygiene. (laughs) I don't know, you heard it here first. I disagree with that, too. All right, so that was our public service announcement. What do you guys think? Uh, that was awesome. Oh, good. Really good. Yeah, Thank you. Great, great, yeah. great segment, how to have fun and learn something yeah, at the same sure. time. Yeah, we had to put Liam in a top hat with a monocle <laughs> to make sure he does that properly. Well, I know you've got the top hat. Have you got the monocle to go with it? 
Do you know how hard it is to find a monocle these days? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we need but to move on to something else. <laughs> and there, there are so many uh, logical fallacies out there that we plan on doing one of those every skeptical show. So look forward to seeing a couple more from our friend Liam, but, uh, so you guys can learn and you, you too can have a good jousting. We are here to educate and delight. Yeah, well, <laughs> at least try. <laughs> All right, I guess now we'll just go into our another brilliant moment. Mark. No, yeah. it's not Mark. Mark no. has got later. Religion no, we want Mark. Religion. Sorry. Mark. Wow. Mark, I keep the best for last. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a good recovery or not. It was a good recovery. <laughs> I, I apologize, Mark. I jumped in there and I didn't know That's the order fine. of things. How the show survived one year at this point is beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> Another brilliant moment. I don't know my place as a woman, apparently. Oh, I'm turning <laughs> off her mic again. Okay. <laughs> the wacky world of religion, guys. And a little story here. Did you guys hear about this mob of men that beat this 27-year-old woman in Afghanistan? No, I did not hear about no, that. No, right? Well... They actually beat her up. <laughs> this is get, gets pretty graphic. They threw her off a roof. They ran over her with a car. They set her on fire and then threw her into a river near a mosque. And this is in front of the police, who actually did nothing. Why? Is it because social, social political events from the West spurred this outrage? No. The dispute uh, over this, uh, this woman had it. Uh, apparently, uh, she had a dispute with a talisman vendor. Right. A, a what? A talisman vendor? Yes. Okay. This guy was selling talismans, and she was having a dispute with him. And uh, she said they were fake. So he replied that she burned a Quran. You know? <laughs> Checkmate. You wow. burned a Quran. So then the mob just pounced on her. Uh, 26 people were arrested. Uh, the police found no evidence that she supposedly burned a Quran. Uh, but there's been an outpouring of grief from the community, which is actually quite, you know... Uh, Comforting in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even the president, which is Ash- Ashraf Ghani, condemned the attack. And here's the kicker: the victim was about to take a teaching post in religious studies, <laughs> and 13 police officers were suspended. Okay, so how did that go down? So there's a bunch of them standing around watching, and then well, this is a, this is near a mosque, near a marketplace, I'm assuming. And you know, this guy is this is selling. Trinkets. Yeah, no, I understand that part. But you said that these people were arrested, but you also said police were standing around watching. Yeah, well, they were arrested after, right? After all the uh, the uh, the uh, the outpour of. I see. So public outcry, and then they made some arrests. That's right. Like That's it, yeah. right. I see. But the it's, it's outrageous that at first, when this was happening, when this woman was being murdered, essentially, the police just stood by and looked at it Same. and did not do anything about it. And wow. Yeah, religion does no harm. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's so similar to the witch trials of Salem, right? Yeah. yeah. Witch! Exactly. And it's exactly what happened. So, any wow. thoughts about this? Outrage. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know what you can say other no, than it's awful. No, but it, I, I think it also points out that, you know, the, like I was uh, saying there, this is not, this is this is completely religion. A lot of times they'll say, oh, these Muslims and taxes, it's, you know, social, political, it's, you know, they're frustrated, the West, it's poverty. No, this was strictly religion right there. Hmm. Yeah. Well, did, did, was there any outcry? Did the public, was there any outcry after that? Were huge outcry after that. A huge funeral procession for her and people were, you know, chanting on basically, you know, especially from women saying enough of this. You know, even after the uh, 
the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan. Apparently, they're claiming nothing has changed for them, and it's about time people start stepping up and saying, it's enough, you know, let's, let's move to the 15th century at least. Yeah, well, that, that might be the only good thing that comes out of events like this, is that people realize, hey, this is dangerous, and it's it's time to lay it to rest. So, we can only hope. All right, well, you know, they called me the king of Segway, guys, and uh, with that, just because... Uh, that kind of stuff happens all the time in uh, Saudi Arabia. Doesn't mean we get nothing from the religious right here. I don't hear anything. <laughs> Always gotta turn the mic off. Hey, welcome to another edition of the Reformation Report, brought to you by me, the Reformed, here at the First United Congregation of New Atheism in Chilliwack. Okay, so this is going to be a short report today, but I think it's a really important one. Um, a couple of years ago, a parent in Chilliwack brought to the attention of the public uh, the fact that the school district in Chilliwack were, were allowing the Gideon um, Bibles to be circulated um, through the Chilliwack School District. And uh, so because of that... Um, those concerns brought forward by that parent and um, because of the petition that was circulated, um, even though the religious right out-petitioned uh, the free thinkers in the area, uh, the, the school district did make a change to their, um, their school policy. And uh, the school policy was changed to say that recognized charitable organizations and other organizations having educational or community service attributes may be authorized by the superintendent of the schools or the superintendent's delegate to have information or materials distributed. So basically what they said was, you know what, we're going to determine who can and can't um, have material distributed within our school district. And uh, you got to remember that the school district of Chilliwack is made up of um, specifically religious right individuals. Well, anyway, today... Uh, and the Centre for Inquiry Canada um, posted uh, a recent news report that the Chilliwack School District has um, rejected um, the uh, the distribution of the um, the magic of reality. Uh, Richard Dawkins' uh, book, The Reality of the Magic of Reality: How We Know What's Really True. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the from the news thing here. Um, to give you an idea, and also it saves you listening to me saying um every five minutes. As a registered educational charity, Center for Inquiry Canada's mandate is to provide education and training to the public in the application of skeptical, secular, rational, and humanistic inquiry through conferences, uh, lectures, published works, and the maintenance of a library. As a project to provide a critical thinking educational resource to the public, CFIC's Educational Committee determined that it would like to provide Richard Dawkins' The Magic of Reality to students. Recognizing the opportunity to provide the printed version of The Magic of Reality to a population of students with a demonstrated need for access to age-appropriate science-based critical thinking resources, CFIC determined that we would approach the Chilliwack School District, a community where Gideon Bibles have been distributed to grade 5 students for many years. Following an exhaustive attempt by CFI Canada to work within the BC Chilliwack School District 
number 33, to provide educational critical thinking resources to students in the area, CFI Canada received a letter from the superintendent of uh, School District 33. And this is what she said. Thank you for your continued interest in providing the resource, the magic of reality, to the Chilliwack School District. As per my last correspondence, according to local school policy, the superintendent reviews all requests for the distribution of the materials. Further to my letter dated January 7, 2015, I have reviewed the resource, the magic of reality, which you kindly provided. The resource does not meet some of the local administrative regulations. The district has, uh, the, sorry, the resource does not meet some of the local administrative regulations the district has that provide guidance in the selection of learning resources. Therefore, this resource is not approved for distribution in the Chilliwack School District. So, I mean, this just is like, you know, another example of the religious right in Chilliwack determining what the children of this country in this province and in this town, this city, sorry, um, determining what they can and can't be exposed to. There is, you know, it's okay for um, the religious right through the Gideon Bibles um, organization to, to distribute um, their mythological book um, of, more, of a supposed morality, and yet someone like Professor Dawkins, who is, you know, alive and well today and has provided much um, great information for all ages, is not allowed. Um, if you're really interested in knowing a little bit more about this and the whole process, because CFIC um, had been in contact with the Chilliwack School District since November of 2014, and all the letters that they provided to the school district, all the letters back from the school district, um, are all on the website. You just go to the, to the centerforinquiry.ca, and uh, if you put in the search tab, Chilliwack rejects Dawkins' magic of reality, you'll find the whole article. And I would really encourage um, the listeners to just, you know, get out there and if you can write a letter or an email uh, to the, uh, the school district of Chilliwack, to the superintendent, to the school district, the Chilliwack School Board trustees, and kind of say, hey, what's going on here? Why is it okay for one group of people, the religious right, to have their material um, distributed or promoted, and yet free thinkers, science, uh Secular thinking is is disrupted. It is it is barriered. It is just not allowed to happen. So I'd really encourage you um, to get out there, write letters, write emails, phone them, uh, have a look at the website, support the Center for Inquiry, and um, yeah, let's not let this uh, let's not let this go because this is really important. This is our, our kids we're talking about. Anyway, that's it from the Reformation Report for this week. Uh, thanks very much for uh, tuning in. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care, guys. Well, what do you guys think of that? Have I even read the book? It doesn't rip into religion or anything. No, no, but I don't think they've read the book. They didn't have enough time to do it. I I looked at the Center for Inquiry Canada's website, 
they had provided the book, and then they got a, a response from the superintendent within 24 hours saying that it wasn't appropriate. And they said, so SCFIC responded and said, really, you couldn't possibly have read this book. So they went through the whole process again, and this time the delayed, the response was delayed a little bit, but still unlikely that they actually read the book. I believe there's one section in it on kind of religious mystics. Yeah, although it's, it's just amazing that you would take, you would throw away the book from probably the most dominant evolutionary biologist of our time. Yeah. But, you know, no, that's not good material for the kids to learn from. Well, yeah. I, I looked at the BC School Act, and um, actually the superintendents and the school boards per district do have the ability to choose the curriculum for that district. So they haven't actually done anything that's outside of their jurisdiction. However, it says very specifically in the School Act that you are not allowed to promote religious materials. So they are not allowed to distribute Gideon Bibles, but they've done that consistently. So I think I think it really needs to be petitioned and brought, and a lot of people need to come forward and say, we do not support this decision because that's the only way it's going to change. Oh, absolutely. It, it, the interesting thing about her letter was that she was re- Rejecting. If I if I misheard it, I, I know you'll correct me, but she was saying that it was an appropriate learning resource, and so it was being rejected. And yet, the Gideon Bible is considered a learning resource. Yes, so they're, what they're doing is trying to pair one with the other. So, in my evil little mind, I'm thinking, well, if someone submitted information on the Quran, on the Talmud, on some of the other religious books, you know. That were comparable to the Bible, and they turned them down. Maybe they'd have a stronger a stronger case if you if you have religious versus religious. But that's just in you know as I say that's in my strategic evil little mind. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman that fought the Langley School District yes. very successfully. Did he do it by introducing other religious uh, works Satanist, or actually. by the Satanists? Yeah, yeah. And there's that great group in the states. It's not the Satanist Temple. The the, um, the one with the statue in Oklahoma? No, no. They're fighting everybody, and they're doing a wonderful job of it. It is a Satanist, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it is a Satanist, but actually they should be called secular progressives because they're really But they've been successful in Florida and and also in city councils. But that's getting away from this thing in Chilliwack. But something has to be done to get them to stop because it's illegal. It is illegal. I, in in my mind, probably what they would say in response to your argument is, well, we don't we don't teach the Gideon Bible. We just allow it to be distributed. It's like at recess or something. So they would say it's it's not being promoted. It's only being allowed to be distributed. But that's really splitting hairs. And the School Act is very clear that the school is a secular place and that religion is not allowed. Well, the, t- the the Gideon Bible could be a teaching instrument. It would teach you to what not to do, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> but uh, from what Alistair said, they're not actually distributing the Gideon Bible anymore, so that's a good thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know how you would go. I think it just needs to be a vast number of people who say, "Look, we don't support this decision." And although the superintendent herself, I don't think, is elected, the school trustees are, so they will listen if enough people Maybe make we a need to make a fuss. Have a, some kind of interview with the Minister of Education. Yeah, that would be cool. Minister of Education has the ability to overturn all the uh, the superintendent's decision. The Minister of no. Education can do that. 
Yeah, so maybe maybe we need to do a bit of research on that and maybe pull in a call someone. Historically, they have not been willing to do that. No, fair but, enough, fair enough. You know, if if it gets enough publicity. But I, I thank you for the report there uh, for corresponding and chill. Like I I, I really liked uh, the report because a lot of these stories you hear are usually from the U.S. Mm-hmm. and we have a tendency to yes. start, start thinking, well, this kind of stuff doesn't happen up here. It is happening. It is. It's starting yeah. to happen, and it's starting to happen with more frequency. And, you know, I'm trying to raise a bit of an alarm over that, and people that have the time are telling me, oh, no, what are you talking about? Yeah, here it is. No, it is. It's, it's slightly imported. Yeah, it totally. comes north from the States. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah, coming it, across the border. Yeah. And I encourage, I'm sure we all, and I'll speak for everybody here, let, let's all encourage everybody to go to the CFI Vancouver website. You can keep up with them. You can you can donate to CFI. You can ask them if you can be of any help. You can see what the resources are. So you don't have to get out there and march with a flag in your hand. There's a lot of ways yes. you, can, you can help the cause. And if you want to remain anonymous, that's fine as long mm-hmm. as you go ahead and understand that our principles are at stake. Mm-hmm. And the more people people that uh, get into the into the fray, the better chance we have to re- mm-hmm. to keep our liberties where they yeah. are, religious yeah. liberties. One of our last episodes was uh, Helping I'm a Slacktivist. So don't click like on Facebook. Actually do something. Listen to what Karen had to say. Actually do something. And think of it as maybe an anniversary gift for her, us here at the <laughs> Just write a letter to somewhere in Chilliwack or go see CFI or something like that. And get involved. Think of it as a birthday gift for us. If Thank we- you. <laughs> if you're interested in this case in Chilliwack, the CFIC website was had a lot of information very clearly laid out, so you can get all the all that you need there. Awesome. Moving on. Things that make you go. Mark. Apparently, hey Mark. you have a nice up. list. <laughs> yeah, Mark. I'm, I I do a segment that's <laughs> like oh boo, and now Mark is here. And I feel like I slighted him before, so I'm trying to make up for that now. Because of the fictional books? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, because I introduced him and then you said no, he can't talk, and then I feel guilty. I didn't about say that. you could talk. <laughs> anyway, Mark. I'm hurt, Mark. <laughs> Mike's all yours, Mark. Thanks, Kevin. So this is a list by Dr. Stephen Kim, and he serves as a founding pastor of the Mustard Seed Church in New York City. And feel free to uh, jump in any time, guys, because I think you're going to want to. And it's ten women Christian men should not marry. Ooh, yeah. I'm sure I make several of these. (laughs) (laughs) Number one is the unbeliever. Scripture is replete with the exhortations against such marriages. Should should we keep track and see? (laughs) Yes, we got Nancy and and, and Karen here. Maybe we should just put a mark on each one of them. (laughs) Okay, Uh, okay, one for me. Contrary to popular misconception, God's prohibited prohibition against marriages to foreign women in the Old Testament was not due to racism, apparently. Instead, God was simply preventing the spread of idolatry. Israel's, Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, represented what Christians would later represent in the New Testament. Hence, God pro- God's prohibition against marrying the unbelieving woman. I can see their point on this one. That's not too controversial, really. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to spread some other no, false idol. Seriously. Yeah. But let's move on to number two, the divorcee. Ooh. Oh, I, are oh. you, Nancy? Uh, yeah. yeah, me too. Oh, okay, right. here we go. Okay. We're, we're on the never-never list before we even get to number two. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Jesus clearly taught that unless the first marriage ended due to a partner's sexual infidelity, a second marriage is to be considered in, invalid and adulterous. 
A divorced woman, therefore, is off limits for a Christian man. Should we brand an A on them too because it's considered adulterous? Yeah, I think so. Like a red A, the atheist A. Yeah, I think that's Two birds, one stone, right? So, unrepentant adultery being a sin that prevents one from obtaining eternal life. Okay, I. Sorry, guys. So, does this. Um, okay, I understand that the woman is unrepentantly adulterous. Yes. Yeah. I, I quite like, actually. But um, does that mean the man is also not going to get into heaven, or just the woman? No, if you marry a, her. No, we, we get a planet. Yeah, we get we're fine. Off. Oh, no, so that's the Mormons. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah, we're oh, good. You're okay. So we're okay. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. Yeah, but we're not going to get into a place we don't believe anyway. But yeah, that's th- true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just our little thing going. <laughs> Not for the poor Christian woman who has to stay married and become black and blue and uh, uh, yeah. abused and live in miserable circumstances while her husband gets to dance around and do whatever he wants. Yeah. Well, even even even, the, even if she's not abused or anything like that, she's just a Christian woman, you know, and she even yeah. if she's in an unhappy marriage, she might be, you know, not abusing her, but there's no relationship between them. You know, she's still kind that's of still not, a form of mental abuse. You know. This one affects me, the older woman. Oh, oh, it's not a uh, thing. Not <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 what do you consider older woman? Then? Well, well, it doesn't give a date, but it's I not guess a it's older than you. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, I would imagine just. Old, I mean, does that even include like one day, six months? How relevant? No, I think it's older. straight away. So, so God expects men to be the spiritual leaders of the home, <laughs> and it certainly requires an extra measure of grace to lead a woman who's older than you. <laughs> An extra measure of grace? Wow. Yes. Don't look at me. I've like always that. seen you've got this grace with you. So. Yeah, okay. You <laughs> must. I am older than you. If you, you have that extra. Slate. The two of you are very graceful men. Thank you. <laughs> Again, if you're a man and you're already in such a marriage, then honor it till the day you die. It's still a valid marriage and divorce is not an option. However, if you're not yet married but thinking about an older woman, I want to remind you that God intentionally and with good reason created Adam before Eve. In the oh. first marriage, with good well, reason. Yeah, what was the good reason there? So, man, he has was as short as her ribs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, it was. Yeah, so it, yeah. he could lead it for was. the sake of authority. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay. So, uh, uh, three for all, right, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> You're staying really calm, Karen. What else? <laughs> yeah, she's got a vein popping oh, in her forehead right now. <laughs> Number four is the feminist. Okay. Oh, right, there we go. Yeah. There is no room within Christendom for the Christian feminist. The so Christian women, feminist? So the women and men have an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> now, apparently, women and men have equal value in the eyes of God. They certainly have different God-given roles. Any woman who tries to usurp her husband's authority or even claims to be a co-leader with her man <laughs> is gravely dishonouring the God who created her to be the subject and obedient to her husband. Um. Okay, I, this is real. Well, oh, this is real stupid. I, yeah. I know, but, but you know, there are there are people who are happily submissive. I don't know why, but... Yeah, oh, Fifty well. Shades of Grey? Because what? With Fifty Shades of Grey, they're heavily submissive. <laughs> I don't know. Uh. So Eve was distinctly created for man, a point that the Apostle Paul makes abundantly clear when he writes, for man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Yeah, Paul's an authority on women. Yeah. <laughs> Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Men, your wife is to be your helper, not your leader, and certainly not your equal in terms of authority. Look for a woman who agrees, agrees with you in every vital God-ordained relationship dynamic. Seriously. Oh. Um. It's all man all the time. 
Um, <laughs> you're, you're very yeah. graceful and holding on together, and I don't see any steam coming out of the headphones. I think the next one you're both fine with is Uh-oh. the Immodest Dresser. Immodest okay. Sexy what? might inadvertently catch your eyeballs, but it shouldn't catch your heart. Aww. <laughs> so, so, so how about I put a half point for that? Who are you saying dressed immodestly? Me. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you are looking good in that, though. The way that a woman is willing to expose herself says much about her heart. Hmm. Really? Yeah, apparently so. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. <laughs> says Proverbs 7.10. <laughs> the text in Proverbs explains that a woman will dress in a certain way to catch a certain type of man. Don't be that man. Well, I guess, I guess we bring out the long dresses again. Yeah. Right? Don't the be long a, sleeve, long dresses. I can see your ankles. Don't be a fool who's led by his hormones instead of the Holy Spirit. Oh. Wow. You're, wow. Well, I don't think, Nancy, I either get a point for that. We're not, we're not particularly one. immodest. No. no. Okay, the gossip or slander. I was going for 100% here. Well, you failed. <laughs> well, if we were, but but if we wear a bathing suit occasionally, will that sort of yeah. give us a three quarters of a point yeah. rather than? Ha- I'm, I'm reluctant to go back half a point because that, <laughs> I haven't read the bikini. Does that count? <laughs> if you're topless, it's half a point. Okay, <laughs> okay go ahead, right. Mark. Right, Sorry, gossiper slash slanderer. Women may love to talk because you know that's not stereotypical <laughs> at all, is not it? Not at all. But there's wisdom in looking for a woman who speaks with wisdom. Gossip and slander are not good things to have in your marriage. Desperate housewife makes for desperate husbands. <laughs> <laughs> He's been watching that show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know if we get it. Like here we are on a radio show. I'm pretty sure that we get a point. For gossip, for, for yeah, being okay. gossiping and slander. I mean, what we're saying well, right now, we're treating against the Holy Spirit right now. Yeah, exactly. So, Number seven, the childbirth avoider. <laughs> Don't marry a woman who is not willing to have children of her own. In the Christian worldview, there is absolutely no room for two married, biologically capable human beings to remain intentionally childless. How dare you choose that? <laughs> oh, hold Do on you have the, how dare you have the choice? I mean, yeah, really, who gets the second. choice? The man well, says. Well, what, <laughs> what if she's okay with having one, two children, but not 20? That's okay, because you've had children. Okay. Good. I, you know, it's, it's not she's okay. still avoiding childbirth, but yeah. you know, she just doesn't but want she's had it. some. She doesn't it's, want her kid to just be walking out of her at some point. It's no good to have no children. Yeah, okay. so. I have a, a little anecdote about that. I know someone who is uh, from a Catholic family, and um, his grandmother had several children already, like 10 or something, and she went to the priest and said, you know, this is really hard on me. I feel my health suffering. I don't think I should have any more children. I've already had lots. And the priest said, no, your duty is to have children. And so she had more children and died really young. Why would you take advice from a guy who doesn't even have a girlfriend, a wife, or is supposedly a virgin? You know, a about spiritual advisor, and she's yeah. just a woman, and she's not allowed to have an opinion. Yeah, I think that sums it up, probably. Yeah, don't you get the wires in your brain kind of go, you know, at that point when you, I don't know. I think <laughs> I would have said all those kids over to the parish to be looked after by the priest, <laughs> personally, but. I think you're on to something. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think they tend to disown things like that. That's right. Actually, you probably don't want to send your children to the priest. We'll, we'll wow. call it Father Verb. <laughs> Until you brought in reality, it was like a wonderful daycare center. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, Mark. number eight, the wanderluster. There's nothing wrong with the occasional family vacation. There is something very wrong with a girl who regularly needs to be out of the home. 
The constant <laughs> desire for new experiences, new places, new faces, and new forms of entertainment only serves to clearly manifest the fact that the woman has not found her resting God. I get full, full, full marks. Mars. Okay, yeah. Full yeah. Mars. Me too. Me too. Wow. Do you, you have children, though? I have three. Okay. But so they're not children anymore. Okay. So but I, but you, you're, not, you're not the childbirth avoider, though. No. Neither one of us got a point for that. Today I am. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> At some point in your life, if you're a childbirth, I should have gotten full marks because it has to do with where in life you are. But, oh, well. Number nine, the career first woman. There is nothing wrong with a woman who works. What's wrong is a woman who puts her career ahead of her family. Modern society might hate to hear this, but God made men to be the providers and women to be the nurturers of the home. It's okay for a woman to be a doctor, attorney, or any other profession. However, if her career is coming at the expense of her home, there's something wrong. Okay, this doesn't this sound like having your cake and eating it too? Like you can say that, oh, well, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the family, but she's going to have to take off time off work to have a child. Yeah. And, you know, she's uh, clearly, it's going to always going to be, oh, well, you have to, your career is, is causing compromises in your family, right? It's always going to be that way. Yeah, so if she has to obey her husband, it's always going to be that you don't get to have a career. Yep. So that that, that's that's kind of a <laughs> the whole the whole list from man's point of view is what can I do to keep this woman mm-hmm. bare what is it barefoot and you know, barefoot and pregnant pregnant yeah. barefoot and yeah. pregnant in the in, in the kitchen mm-hmm. I mean if there's any possible way she could gain any intellectual um, any autonomy of yeah, any, any type. autonomy or anything that's you immediately got to put it on the list and forbid yeah. it yeah exactly yeah. She, she's she might be smarter than he is and make more money <gasps> <gasps> no he has no, to be the no, provider no. and the spiritual advisor and the spiritual advisor. in the in the church women don't are not allowed to have a life Denied. is this like the insecure <laughs> christian man's list or is it just <laughs> yeah I, w- I wonder where this actually comes from you know, I always pictured right. Jesus as a bit of an awkward, insecure kind of guy. I had no luck with the girls whatsoever. He probably had like a huge... Oh, I don't know, of... Mary Magdalene. She was probably in a modest dresser, though. Yeah, true. I yeah. wonder. She was the one well, making the moves on him. She was a prostitute, wasn't she? No! What, I just, really? I, no, I... <laughs> okay, now the steam's coming out. I heard, I heard this. I heard someone say that, oh, Mary Magdalene is a prostitute. And I'm like, I think I actually asked my mom, and, you know, she's a Christian, and, uh, and she's like, oh, yeah, That's she's okay, a prostitute. Wolf. And I'm like... Really? So I went through every single line in the Bible, every where she's referenced. It is not in the Bible. Mary Magdalene is not referenced as a prostitute or anything except for a woman in the Bible. But some, you know, monk or something decided that that would be a good way to to limit her power in the Bible, right? Because yeah. she is close to Jesus. But turn her into a prostitute, turn her into a whore, and then she loses all her credibility. And so that was that's what happened but the, it's not in the bible at all oh you said prostitute for a second i thought you said protestant Whew. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be a, probably quite a good uh, topic for another discussion mm-hmm. these fallacies that we think are from the bible and they're not yeah oh yeah, yeah. I mean, just lies yeah <laughs> that's <it. laughs> and lastly the devotionless woman it's the woman having a regular daily devotional time with her god if she doesn't love the Lord now, <laughs> chances are she you, won't love the Lord after marriage. Did you have your five minutes with God today? <laughs> <laughs> did you have your quickie with God? <laughs> uh, you want to marry a girl who has an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus, oh. not you, has to be the first man in her life. Oh, <laughs> Here's some good questions Double to whammy. ask. Does she have an active prayer life? Does she have a heart for evangelism? Is she hungry for God's word? 
What does the, her pastor think about her? Oh, what, oh. wow. Well, now, that's an awkward conversation. You go Seriously, up to the pastor and say, hey, so what do you think of my wife? Yeah, she's pretty. <laughs> oh, she's so hard for Jesus. <laughs> what makes me really happy is not being married to this man. I mean, just, this is the man to avoid. Yeah. This yeah, this is the man to yeah. the list for the modern woman <laughs> yeah. to avoid. Yes, exactly. There is a list like that. There is a list of, you know, 10 things women should Ten type of men women should not marry. There is that list. Yeah, he he did a previous one. The ten yeah. Christian men women shouldn't marry, which we should dig up. I think. Yeah, we yeah, should yeah. Dig it up. and his name should be on that list too. So, did, were you a career first? <laughs> no, not yours. Nancy, did you did you get a point for that career first? I don't get a point for that. I I took time off to raise my children. So mm-hmm. I, I don't no, I married well. I was a junior in college for the first time, so I had to establish a career. After I was divorced and I was a single parent, so that's when I became more independent. You know, wanted to remain so. So you are. So you'd say you were career first. Or? I would. Yeah. I okay. Would. And so you're, you're going to beat me. Devotionist. Yeah. Oh, oh, I meant you were talking about historically. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, More no. More information than you needed. No, no, yeah. I, that's exactly what I was asking. And oh, we yeah. are both devotionless. I'm pretty sure you yeah. don't pray for five minutes every morning or whatever that was. No, I only pray for a few more minutes of sleep while my dog's <laughs> trying to get me up out of bed. But that's as close as so, I so, get. So do you have a total there? Uh, well, Nancy. Hold on. <clears throat> okay, can I go? <laughs> Nancy wins with eight out of ten of the. Wow! <laughs> oh, no. I only have seven. So. I can see Christian men running a block away. <laughs> in the well, <laughs> thank done. goodness I'm safe again. <laughs> so now we know what areas we need to improve on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys need to get ten out of ten. Exactly. <laughs> it's the modest dress I think that dragged us down, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mark. That was very enlightening. Yes, it yeah. was. And a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, so now we got this interview with uh, Christopher DiCarlo. Christopher DiCarlo was actually at, uh, I found out he was at every Imaginal Religion event uh, since uh, the get-go. He's from Toronto. He's an author. Um, and uh, he wrote this great book called uh, How to Be a Really Good Pain in the Ass. And uh, so we got a 27-minute interview with him. So I go, I'll go ahead and play that, and we'll be back right after that. My guest today is an award-winning lecturer on bioethics and philosophy of science. He's a fellow advisor and board member of the Society of Ontario Freethinkers and Center for Inquiry Canada, and a visiting scholar at Harvard. He's a snappy dresser, a great dancer, and above all, a master of critical thinking, Christopher DiCarlo. Ladies and gentlemen. Hey. How you doing? Great, great. Where's our applause? There's our applause. <laughs> Thank you for coming, Christopher. Uh, welcome to the Valley. Uh, I hear, uh, first of all, I hear that you are going to be uh, soon in the area for Imagine No Religion 5. That's right, that's right. My uh, my fifth appearance in as many years. Excellent. Uh, your fifth appearance, really? You've been on all five of them. Yeah, Bill and Kathy invited me to the first one, and then, uh, yeah, just kept getting the invite uh, every year. Yeah. yeah so. Well, we we met you at the Imaginal Religion 4, and we're looking forward to seeing you at Imaginal Religion 5. Um, um, Christopher, for those of us who might not know about you, can you give us a brief history about yourself? Uh, basically raised in kind of a small to mid-sized town, Guelph, Ontario, and uh, went to university here, did a couple of degrees, then over to Waterloo for a Ph.D., uh, did a postdoc at Harvard after that, and then basically been teaching at various universities since then, Guelph and Toronto, Ryerson, University of Ontario, places like that. Mm-hmm. So, Excellent. Okay. I've got a few books out, you know, 
Yeah, and we're talking about one in particular today. We're talking about the uh, how to become a really good pain in the ass. First of all, kudos on the title. That is a fabulous title. <laughs> Thank uh, you. A critical thinker's, uh, thinker's guide to asking the right question. Um, what prompted you to uh, write such a guide? Uh, was it to improve debate skills amongst uh, people? or? Yeah, so I had had a former book out for my students, university students, but it was fairly dry and text-like. And then uh, a publisher approached me and said, if you can make this more of a popular version for the average person, you know, whether they just walk into a Chapters or an Indigo or Barnes & Noble, um, you know, then this, this would be a great idea. And so I decided to make the book centered around the most important questions that humans ask about themselves. You know, why am I here and how should I behave and what am I? And then to break it down into two different ways in which people tend to answer those questions, naturally or supernaturally. Some try to do kind of a hybrid, but to me that defines a person. Um, forget, you know, the you know, the speed dating and the chatting and all that kind of stuff. You want to find out about a person, ask them how they answer those big five questions. And you'll find out a lot of, about them. And, uh, you know, because how you answer, why am I here and how should I behave and what is to come of me, will trickle down and it'll, it'll affect the way you answer other questions about abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, and all those other types of, you know, real big issue items, right? Mm-hmm. 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 I see, I see. Uh, where's the... Uh, as the book has been, uh, well, it seems, I, I think so far it's a, it's a great book. It's a great read. I'm halfway through it. Uh, and uh, has it been uh, very well received amongst the, the general public? Yeah, it has. It's a, it's an international bestseller now. So I got the word uh, from the publisher. It sold uh, well over 10,000 copies. It's doing very well in the U.S. and Europe. Um, not as well as Canada, surprisingly, <laughs> even really? though, you know. <laughs> but what can you do? Um, oh, yeah. I, so, yeah. This is thing about Canadians, we just don't like to encourage our own for some reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. so it's, yeah, it's it's done very well, and I'm I'm thinking of working on on another one right now. I have a number of projects on the go right now. Excellent, excellent. So, um, if we're going to deal a, a bit uh, deeper into the book, there, uh, there's this uh, this part um, where you start enumerating the different type fallacies, the most common ones. Uh, in your opinion, what do you think are the most common mistakes people make in debates? Well, when having intelligent discussions, uh, oftentimes people um, will conflate ideology. They'll conflate factors. So what I see on the news and what you even see on, on uh, you know, CNN and, and right to the Springer show is I see people conflating uh, or equivocating ideas that should be kept separate or should be understood to be kept separate. And one of these is the distinction between, you know, facts and values, what's sometimes referred to as the naturalistic fallacy, but the idea that a lot of people say, just because you state a fact doesn't necessarily mean you hold a value to that particular fact. And so, you know, one of the obvious things would be, say, you know, the Ferguson, Missouri, you know, the, the shootings or the various types of shootings. Uh, if you were to mention a fact as to what you believe happened, and it, it ran in, in opposite views of what people thought uh, was a more of a racial issue, you could be called out as being a racist, mm. even mm. if what you understand, well, were the facts X? If the facts were X, was the cop acting in self-defense? And immediately, if you, if you say if those were the facts, well, you're a racist then, 
And what bothers me is people sometimes jump too quickly to the value side of an argument before getting all the facts straight, right? And so that seems to me, in the world, people tend to go from that descriptive side of things where the facts are over to the prescriptive value-laden side, right? Okay. And that, that's what I tend to see a lot happening now, especially in the U.S. Okay, that's an, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting thing. Is it is it because people, uh, does it betray their ignorance that they have a tendency to jump forward to this kind of conclusion? Yeah, I think it's because... Uh, humans, long before we were rational beings, we were emotional beings. And the fact of the matter is, that's why we take things to heart so much. Like, we all agree racism is bad. There's, there's, no, there's no question about that. Treating people uh, differently based on an irre- irrelevant characteristic like skin color is absurd. Yep, we all get that. Um, but when, when just dealing with, with certain types of issues, what we want to make sure of is to have the facts down first. Otherwise, what you can do is just jump to false conclusions and then have to go back and backpedal and then correct and then, right? So a good critical thinker is somebody who's cautious, careful, tries to get as much of the facts first before they start to formulate an ethical opinion about how it is they feel emotionally. So that's what critical thinking does. It says, wait a minute, we know we're emotional, but hang on here, in the interest of fairness, in the interest of trying to best understand what's at issue, we have to divorce our emotions for a second and try to look at, at information as purely as we can. And, and the, the news doesn't help, right? Because obviously certain news services have editorial biases, and we know that. Yeah, we're not going to mention anybody in Fox News. No, exactly. Even as fair and balanced as they are, <laughs> <laughs> you're still, you're still going to get biases creeping forward, right? Hmm, interesting, interesting. Uh, do, you, do you feel that uh, this is actually helping people, uh, or, or do you feel debating is helping the atheistic cause? I do, and and I'm I'm kind of in you know I'm I'm a, a unique uh, person in this regard. Um, yeah, I was I was going to say uh, you're uh, a lot of people say that you're wasting your time when you're debating. Yeah, like Richard Dawkins told me to stop doing it back in 2000. And, and I told him then, as I tell people now, that essentially, you know, I'm not debating in order to win and to demonstrate to people that our, you know, our side is the champion side, you know, and you guys are losers, and I've won, and I've converted all of you with my, you know, brilliant logical acumen. That's not why I'm there. I just had a, a large debate in Toronto. Uh, against this John Lennox guy from Oxford that mm-hmm. Dawkins and Hitchens and those guys have gone up against. And I I basically like to have a dialogue. I don't even want to call these things debates. I like to have a dialogue. And to have a discussion is to demonstrate that you can do it in an intelligent, tolerant manner, disagree at the end of the day, but then try to figure out, you know, A, what are the common values we all share? Even though I'm an atheist and you're a Christian, you disagree with what I believe in, and I certainly disagree with what you believe in. Are there any common values that we do happen to share that's going to allow us to live in a fairly compatible way without killing each other? And two, and the most important reason why I do these debates, is because when people from the so-called other side or people from the kind of theistic side see a guy like me up there debating and making relatively good points and being a relatively decent moral ethical person, it makes them wonder, how can this guy be like that without our God? 
And that then resonates in the minds of people that, well, okay, he seems like a decent enough person, and he's not on our side, so it is going to have some resonance. Now, I have to tell you, every time I get contacted to debate some person or other, my response is always the same. What side would you like me to take? Really? Yep. What side would you like me to take? And there's always a pause. Um, you're, you're atheist, right? Yes, yes, I am. Well, we thought you would take that side. I said, I can, if you want. But you know what? Just once, I'd like them to take my side. I'll take their side, and I'll do the best job I can as a critical thinker. And I would hope that they would do the same. Just to crawl into their headspace, have them crawl into mine, and see what turns out. Just for, you know, just because it's never been done before. Why don't we try that? So so nobody's ever taken you up on that? <laughs> no. Oh. No. I, I would be very interested in seeing that. Uh, it would. Just, just to give, give people the idea that we are fair-minded. That we're not so dogmatic that we can't entertain, you know, somebody else's worldview. I think that's healthy. I think we need to do more of that. Well, they, they do say that, you know, to be a master at debates, you need to be able to debate both sides of a... a uh, a premise, I guess, or a question. Uh, so right. It'd be very interesting. Would you, uh, hypothetically, if you were to debate for God, would you actually try to break down the logic of uh, of the atheistic uh, response, or how? What would you? What would your approach be? I'm sure you thought about yeah. this before. I, I, if it was a God debate, I would try first of all to keep God as a, as as kind of nebulous and undefined as possible. Well, that shouldn't be too hard. Yeah, because as soon as a theist tries to add up what I call strings of conjunct, starts defining a god more and more and more, the easier it is for guys like me to find inconsistencies and contradictions. But if you keep God as this kind of nebulous thing, you know, I might even say something like, um, God could be possibly evolving as the multiverse is evolving, as an emergent consciousness that hasn't even come into being yet, for all we know. You know, I could keep it fairly kind of you know, out there and vague and that sort of thing. Now, if they want me to take the Christian position, that's going to make things a lot more more difficult um, because they should be able to find flaws and, and inconsistencies and contradictions. And, you know, so much of the, the Christian dogma is is filled with with problems of consistency and, you know, logical fallacies. But that's for sure. I would still try it. I would still try it, and I would still do my very best that I could in the hopes that they would do the same. Huh. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so um, for the um, prospective student, I guess, that's been reading your book, um, mm-hmm. what would you recommend the, 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 uh, for them holding their skills? I mean, of course, we recommend reading the book, and we'll put that in the synopsis of the, 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 the podcast, and... We'll put that on the web page as well. But to, to become a better, a more skilled debater, what would you recommend they start doing? Well, usually debating starts with a family as, as kids start to grow up, right? And they start challenging their parents' worldviews and their home ideologies and those types of things. Um, one of the things I, I tell high school students when I go into the high schools, I, I've been given the opportunity, I've convinced the Ministry of Education in Ontario to go in and develop a critical thinking program for high schools. So I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's what I've been doing since September. Okay. 
Yeah, and what I get them to do is I say, have your parents ever told you something like, um, do X because I said so? Well, that's a fallacious appeal to authority. It's really not an argument. You can actually call your parents and your teachers out and anybody who uses that type of an argument. So basically to get them to start by spotting the, the easiest types of fallacies that are out there. Uh, false dichotomies, we either do A or B. Really? It's only A and B. Those are our only choices. There's not C, D, or E. Well, then that's a false dichotomy, right? Ad hominems, right? Attacking the person rather than focusing on their argument. These are the easiest ways to get people to understand, first of all, errors in the reasoning of others. And then what I tell students is when they have a, a conceptual understanding of my ABCs of critical thinking, everything they look at, and the easiest thing I get them to look at are commercials, advertisements. Everything you look at can come in the form of an argument in some way or, the other, or another. So when you look at a commercial or an advertisement, magazine, video, television, anything, the conclusion is always the same, right? It's buy this product. That's the conclusion. It's usually hidden. Um, very rarely will people just come out and say, please buy our product. We want the money. We like the money. <laughs> but that is what all advertisers are trying to do, right? Get you to spend your money. Okay, we all know this. We all know that's what the hidden conclusion is. What are their premises? What are their reasons for trying to get you to the conclusion to spend your money? And do you accept those premises or not? Have they committed any fallacies along the ways? So I get, especially high school and first-year university students, start paying attention to advertisements and start being more critically aware of what are they trying to appeal to? I don't know. Have you seen the latest uh, commercial for, it's a Buick, and a woman's on a cell phone. And yeah. She's saying, where are you? I'm in the Buick. Oh, I see it. And she gets in the car, and there's a guy eating a, a sub. That's right, that's right. She's in the wrong yeah, car. So I, yeah, so she's in the wrong car because, oh, she figured the Buick must be a much nicer car, whatever, you know. But when you look at that commercial carefully... Notice the guy. Here's a woman getting into a man's car. How do they make the man non-threatening? His hands are tied up, right? He's eating a sandwich. He's very cute. He's androgynous. He has very feminized characteristics. He's non-threatening. And it's, it's a humorous aspect of the commercial, right? So yeah. it's not like it's in any possible way threatening to that woman. And so they, they, they tailored and cast that actor, whomever he was, perfectly for that role to make him non-threatening and add to the, the humorous appeal of that commercial. So those are some of the ways in which I get people to think more clearly about you know, what's going on out there in the world and how you can start to develop some of your critical thinking skills just by watching television or seeing ads that come on in between whatever you're watching online, right? Mm, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, here... Uh, here, here's a problem I have. I'm, I'm not a very skilled debater. I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, and sometimes I get, uh, I wouldn't say stumped, but sometimes, I, oh, let me give you an example. Uh, the other day I was debating this this this, uh, this gentleman about, of course, God and all that. And um, yeah, he sent me this uh, video about, you know, Ray Comfort and all that that nonsense. All right. And, and I basically respond to him and says, okay, so on your side you have like Peter Popoff, Jimmy Swaggart, Ray Comfort, and uh, the Hovens, and Kirk Cameron, you know, all miserable failures. While on my side of the argument, I've got, you know, Stephen Hawkins, Lawrence Krauss, Richard Dawkins, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson, the most brilliant minds. And right away he jumped, appealed to authority. 
And that kind of stumped me for half a second there, because in a way, it sort of was that. Um, hmm. How would you have reacted to this situation? Well, there's uh, appeal. If you're appealing to authority in and of itself, then it can be fallacious, because an authority by itself does not make a good argument. Uh, arguments stand and fall based on the soundness of their premises and the consistency of our assumptions. That is to say, the criteria your premises satisfy. And if your premises are consistent and they're free of logical fallacies and the information in your premises have been attained in a reliable manner, then these are all the assumptions. These are all the criteria that your premises have satisfied, which your parties would also agree to are the same types of criteria they want their premises to satisfy then the argument stands on its own. Having authorities come on board is simply kind of an endorsement. It's like they have used similar types of mental processes and abided by epistemically their arguments. So the arguments themselves are good. What we now have is we have people who are well-educated who can now demonstrate why those arguments are good because they possess the same reasoning capacities that, that you or I or anybody else can use. Okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, so endorsement alone is never enough, right? I'm not going to buy a Buick because Matthew McConaughey drives one, or says he drives one long before he got paid for driving one. <laughs> yeah, yeah fair So, enough. you know, that means nothing to me. His authority as a person who knows good automobiles is zero to me. He's a pretty boy, half-decent actor. Good on him. But that tells me nothing. I'm not going to get a car because I think people are going to look at me like I'm Matthew McConaughey. I'm not going to make that same connection. If it's a good car, I'll find out in Consumer Reports or any other reliably attained information, and then I'll make the decision based on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, fair enough. Uh, could somebody could somebody be sneaking in there and say, you know, um, in the, the same uh, example I just used, could somebody be sneaky to say, well, the, these uh, premises you are making, you did not make them yourself. You just got them from somebody else, which of oh, course becomes right. the appeal to authority, right? Right, right. Well, in certain fields of information, we all have to do that. I mean, when my furnace person tells me, you know, you need, you need this new uh, part because the old one's uh, burnt out, uh, I have to defer to their judgment. I don't. I can't know everything about everything. So when I read Dawkins's books, and I don't know as much about genetics or biology as he does, I'm grateful that a guy like that can so eloquently put into verse information that a guy like me or anyone else is better able to grasp and understand. Guys like Dawkins, people like Dawkins, very important because they're capable of taking fairly abstract concepts and making them readily available to humans who otherwise would need years and years of training to be able to do this. And and he didn't just get there on a whim. I mean, he's an Oxford professor. I mean, so he's passed through all the checkpoints needed for the peer review process to determine if he's qualified or not, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Great, great advice. Okay, uh, I guess uh, this, this is the point where I guess go right ahead, uh, Christopher, the mic is all yours. Plug yourself. Plug it all. Be shameless. Go right ahead. Promote yourself. <laughs> well, um, basically, I'm uh, I'm working on uh, a new project now. This this will kind of be precursive of what I'm going to talk about. 
um, at INR5. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give you a, a little bit of an, uh, 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 a promo on that, if you sure. will. With Fox News, with MSNBC, with Sun News that just died in Canada, <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of these places where we get information, what I found over time is that humans in general care a lot about a virtue that we call fairness. We all think fairness is a good thing, you know. Rarely would people come along and say, no, I don't like being fair. I like seeing total inequity. So based on that, what I've done is I basically tried to figure out a way in which we can get information as fairly developed as possible. So I've come up with a a concept known as the fair machine. And what I'm trying to develop is a hub in which information comes into the hub that has been... Um, okayed, so to speak, by the best people in their fields. And then algorithms will make determinations when when we wish to suggest into the machine the fairest way for developing certain types of social policies, what the machine will be able to do will reduce the amount of bias that humans have because of political agendas and vested interests and those types of things. It will just look at the purity of the information based on precedence, based on its current uh, parameters and constraints, and then information in, information out. It'll kick out information then, and it'll run it over a series of thousands of, of, of times to be able to give us a, what I call a decent starting point. So say the Senate in Ottawa, you have the upper house developing so many committees to look into things, and that is a process that has a certain amount of efficacy in developing or helping with the social policy bill and law-making process. No question about that. But maybe we can do better than that. Since we know senators are appointed because of favors, you know what I mean, that people put them in there because they're old pals, and it's, it's not the most equitable system to be helping us with political decisions, fine. Let's help them facilitate that. Let's develop a machine in which nobody has control over what the machine will do in terms of running its algorithms to figure out what the best solution to a social policy problem is. And then what that is, is it then becomes our human starting point. So nobody has the right to say then that it wasn't as fairly produced as we could possibly make it. So if we can reduce bias, create a machine that intentionally reduces bias so that the information that is contained within the machine and the process that goes on is not affected by political agendas, then what it kicks out at the end will be the best as humans that we can do to this current point in time for making very important decisions about ourselves, our environment, the management of human and natural resources, you know, the really important stuff. So take, humans are stupid. Take humans out of the equation <laughs> and let the machine do what it can do faster, better, more equitably than any other body of humans could ever do. And then what comes out at the end becomes our human starting point for the discussion. So we're not wasting all, all that time, you know what I mean, determining the shape of the conference table or the meeting table and who's going to cater this thing. We don't have to worry about any of those silly details about what the left and the right and the centrists are worried about, 
the machine takes care of that. So we've gotten to a point where we have the technology and we have the capacity to build this type of machine. So I'm going. To, I've been proposing it, and I've been looking for uh, a host university, whether Ryerson or U of T, to basically, you know, help me in developing funding for this, so that it can then go to the Senate, or it can go to your business, or it can go to, you know, any particular aspect of life. And it will be, you know, a, a free sourced uh, capacity online that people can have access to. Interesting. And yeah. uh, that almost sounds like artificial intelligence in a way. It is. It is. And I'm, I'm very much interested in building, having this thing built, but I want it to start with the arts and the humanities. So it'll start with the philosophers, the historians, you know, the, you know, the, the, the languages, literatures, humanities. And the question will be, what, well, what is fairness? What do we mean by fairness? So we'll have to get all of that straight before we can then move to the next level of actually practically developing it. So it'll start with the philosophers and end with the engineers and the computer scientists, right? Oh, and for the record for the audience, when, when Christopher said, you know, people are stupid, he was not pointing at me directly. No, I no, just want to make no. that clear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christopher, well, thank you so much. Where can people reach you if they want to find out more about your uh, your projects? Well, I have a kind of a, 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 a number of different emails, depending on, on what university, but uh, Christopher.DeCarlo at utoronto.ca is, okay. is usually the thing to get a hold of me. Perfect. And uh, they can find my website, cdecarlo.com. Go and to CFI as well, right? Yeah, and CFI and Humanist Canada as well. And um, my this part of this project, this fairness project, is something called the Oz Talk Project or the Onion Skin Theory of Knowledge Project. So they can go to oztalkproject.com as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christopher. The book is How to Become a Really Good Pain in the Ass, A Critical Thinker's Guide to Asking the Right Question. Thank you so much, Christopher. Until next time. My pleasure. Thank you. Oh. It's Christopher DiCarlo. Let me turn your volumes back on, guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Kevin. As a spiritual advisor to me, I'm I'm so appreciative that you did that. Thank you. Did you just call me a spiritual advisor? Yeah, and that you're allowing me to speak. I promise I won't gossip. <laughs> Sorry. The comments made by Karen are not necessarily those uh, reflected by leftofvalley.com. <laughs> what do you guys think of Christopher DiCarlo? He's a nice guy, isn't he? Yeah, for sure. He's From good. Toronto, yeah. Nice guy. I was very impressed with his critical thinking project. I think that's awesome. That yeah, will be yeah. in the curriculum. And uh, reading through his book is what kind of inspired that uh, little segment we did though, about knowing your fallacy. So we're going to do a whole bunch of those. Well, the, the main ones anyway. Mm-hmm. And we'll air one of those uh, every so often whenever we do uh, one of those shows. Those uh, skeptical shows. <laughs> one of those shows. Yeah, one of those shows. <laughs> I think every show is one of those shows. Anything but you want to add to this, Mark? No, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> That's it. I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for my writing. All right. A nice lady asked me recently what it would take for me to believe or worship her god. Atheists would usually react by simply stating that they would need some evidence, but press further, I'd say the question is not easily answered. Although I hate using the term believe, especially when discussing evidence, I have to admit that 
When heavy scientific areas like abiogenesis, evolution, or astrophysics are explained to me, I understand only a fraction of it, and mostly rely on the work of previous scientists and their conclusion. So why can't I rely on the work and conclusion of priests, imam, rabbis, and other men who have also dedicated their life to the pursuit of truth? Data. Simply put, we trust and even believe science because it provides evidence backing up its claim. Religion has made many claims throughout history, claims of knowledge, salvation, and hope, and yet after several millennia has yet to come up with any data, any evidence to support anything it has ever said except a few philosophical sleight-of-hand tricks and semantics. Heck, even when the church was all powerful and had all the best mind in its service for nearly 2,000 years, the best discovery they could come up with was how to be more efficient in torturing confessions out of peasants accused of witchcraft. In there lies the difference. Religion promised, but science delivered. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't be inclined to believe in God if I saw evidence like an amputee regrow a limb or if Christians were statistically immune to disease. But the deafening silence of the supposed creator of the universe who apparently cares to, and loves us so much as to require a blood sacrifice to forgive us of the sins he so tenderly gifted us with raises an eyebrow on the factuality of the fable at the very least. Given all that has happened and still happens throughout our lives, as one brave prisoner of Auschwitz wore on its wall, if God exists, he will have to beg for my forgiveness. Worse still is that chief amongst promises there probably is a paradise possible for all to enjoy, a promised land of milk and honey with no pain or fear. Now if we could only get religion and its blood sacrifices, sedition and history of atrocities to get out of its way, get out of our way, so we can actually build it. Well, that takes us to the end of our show. Thank you again, Mark, for coming. Yeah, uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Nancy, for you guys for coming. Uh, and thanks for having us. I totally appreciate you guys uh, being here on our one-year anniversary for mm. uh, for our show. And uh, you guys can uh, follow us at uh, liftedvalley.com. You can go to blogtalkradio.com. And if you become a follower, uh, when the show is about to air, they send an email to you guys. So you guys are uh, know, know right away that we're about to air. Um, you can Never follow us on miss an episode. That's right, that's right. <laughs> also available on iTunes too. Eh? Absolutely. Yeah, that's on iTunes. Right. You can uh, follow us at, on Facebook. You can uh, send us love mail, hate mail, and liftatvalley at outlook.com. Coming up soon, we're still working with David Fitzgerald and da- on David Smalley. We'll also have Alexandra Morton, biologist, talk about the wild salmon issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're talking about having an education debate about the. Uh, we're having a trustee, a local trustee, and a teacher come into the studio and talk about what's going on in the educational world. So you guys can hopefully stay in touch with that. Awesome. Anything you guys want to add to this? Thanks for listening. (laughs) Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.